0: Hey, good morning to you if you're new. Welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, uh, around you. Uh, borrow one from your neighbor and find Malachi. Uh, if you don't know where Malachi is, turn to the New Testament, the first book of the, of the New Testament in Matthew. Turn back one book and you will land in Malachi. We're toward the end of Malachi's instruction to us here as we are headed toward the Christmas season. Last week we saw uh, Malachi deal with perhaps one of the most uh, viscerally difficult issues for any of us in dealing with uh, injustice. And uh, we spent time there in Malachi chapter 3. If you're turning there and you found it, we're going to be in Malachi 3 verses 6 to 12. But we, we wrestled last week with the reality of the of the spiritual pressure that comes when we see and experience injustice in our world. That even this week, I'm sure that you have seen more uh, conversations with wars happening in a variety of places around our world where there are issues of injustice being risen, where there are demands and concerns and blogs being written about all the injustice that we see in the world. So let me tell you where we've been in the book of Malachi to give you a little bit of a running start. This book began dealing with worship. It began with uh, the people of Israel who have returned from captivity in exile who are now back in their land and they've restored the altar, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices and Malachi really has confronted them and, and dealt with a lot of the religious and cultic practices of their day. Um, We've looked at how they've given uh, sacrifices that have been defiling to the Lord. We've looked at a spiritual priesthood that hasn't been doing it right and has been allowing people to bring just any old thing to God. Uh, We've dealt not only with the spiritual realities of their day, but we've also dealt with the social realities of their day, that these people have now committed treason and treachery against one another. We looked at their marriages, that they were treacherous not only in the community, but they were treacherous in the most devoted earthly relationship that God expects of his people. So as we've dealt with the spiritual and we've dealt with the social, we're going to come today and begin to deal with really the economic expression of their twisted and kind of broken spiritual lives. Uh, and if last week we dealt with injustice, that is very, very easy to see. I'm sure that we all felt that reality that anytime we see injustice occurring to us or around us, it, it is almost uh, like radioactive in our, in our perception. It's very, very easy to see. Well, this week it's gonna be balanced with something that's very, very hard for us to examine in our own lives. And in fact, unless we have God's word to give us clarity on this particular issue when it comes to economics and money and really the tithe, which is the Old Testament expression of dependence on God, it's going to be hard for us to examine our spiritual lives when it comes to money. By a way of illustration, this week, I'm sure as you've turned on the news and read on the internet, you've, it's been very easy for you to see issues of injustice. But this week, I have not seen one commercial as you're watching football or as football comes to an end and basketball begins where the commercial goes something like, try contentment. Don't buy our thing. Have you considered that money might be your god? Right, you, you don't get any of those demands in our culture for, for, for reflection because our entire culture focuses not only on uh, opportunities to buy and purchase within the commercial engine of America, but it also is very, very reticent to come anywhere near to being financially dependent. Our whole goal as Americans is to be financially what? Independent. If I could give it all up and become a handsome billionaire, I would. But I can't. Because the drive in our culture is toward making financial freedom the ambition of all of our lives. And what you're going to see in a passage like this is how God is going to both confront his people with his character and his goodness and his kindness and at the very same time invite them in to experience something at the level of their finances, at the level of kind of the marrow of our lives and how we make decisions. And he's going to invite them to experience him in that particular place. So he's going to work again through a, an argument with his people who, surprise, don't really understand what Malachi is saying. And Malachi is going to, be have to, going to have to be very specific in peeling back the layers and getting them to understand what God is going for as he deals with their finances. So Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about money. <laughs> I don't plan these things. This is what God does, right? As you journey through the scriptures, you come to hot topics that you can't avoid, Uh, So we're not going to avoid it. We're going to see what God has to say to us here. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, for the few minutes that we look into your word, as our hearts are warmed by singing with the saints the truths of Christmas, that remind us of your goodness, that you're a God who was willing to come down and step into the mess of a sinful and broken world and participate in it for our sakes. We, We pause and just give thanks at the miracle of the Incarnation. We confess that we cannot save ourselves, That we needed God to come in from the outside to do what we could not do to restore a relationship that we could not fix and to rise again from the grave to bring people with himself into your presence so that forever and for always we might know you and worship you and receive great joy because of that relationship. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word and we're confronted with what Malachi has to say, I pray that our hearts would be sensitive, our hearts would be open, and that we would be a people that would would respond to the commands in this passage, eager to know you and experience you in ways that maybe we've never tested you in before. So, Father, we love you. We're dependent on you. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to understand your word and you would give light to the many areas of our hearts in which we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Now, we ended last week looking at Malachi 3, verse 6, and we looked at the unchangeability of God to close our time last week. So, if you just look with me at at 3, verse 6, Uh, It says this, by way of introduction, I'll, I'll tell you why this matters in a second, but for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. And that was the the good news that we had last week when we look at injustice and we recognize that we too have been unjust, that we are glad that God does not change because God is consistently saving wicked and evil people and bringing them into relationship with himself, that we couldn't interpret God's uh, apparent passivity towards sin and wicked and evilness as apathy. We had to interpret it as his patience and kindness and saving people, and that was good news. Now, that was last week as we look back up into that passage on injustice. This week, we're going to look at God's thoughts on the economic engine of Israel. And it begins, in a sense, in this paragraph with, again, God's focus for us being drawn to his unchangeability. So this passage is really built upon the character and the promises of God. That God's promises are something that he is bound to. He's bound to respond to his word in a particular way. So that's the backdrop as we get into this. Because his faithfulness and his consistency is drawn out. And it's really balanced by what Malachi is going to say in 3 verse 7. So you're all there? 3, 6? You see that? Let's look at 3, Seven. Here's God's historic, unchanging, faithful to his promises ways confronted with the people of Israel. Look at verse 7. What do you think? Have the people of Israel been, been as faithful to God as God has been faithful to them? Here it goes. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Well, that is not, would you agree that's not good news coming from God? That God says, you don't just have a problem today. you have a historical, uh, a historical pattern. You are living the way your fathers in the faith, since I've called this nation to myself back in the book of Exodus, and I brought them and redeemed them out of Israel, out of Egypt, rather, that these people have consistently wandered away. They've consistently defected from the path and the relationship that I have had from them. So three, six, and seven work together to go, God is unchanging, but his people are what? His people are fickle. His people are changing. His people constantly, what's the hymn say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Amen? that we recognize that God has been faithful, but we as people, and these people, have not. They've done a couple of things here. They've, one, they've turned aside from his statutes. That word "statutes" shows up in the book of Exodus as the people come out of the nation of Egypt, and they're on their way to Sinai. And on their way to Sinai, they find uh, water that's bitter, and they call the place Mara. And it says that Moses takes a log and throws the log into the water, and the water becomes sweet. And it's Exodus 15, and this word statutes shows up here, and I I just want to read it to you from Exodus 15 for you to see why God gives statutes to his people. Why is it that God has given his rules and his commands? In fact, this word shows up even earlier in the life of Abraham when God describes Abraham and says, Abraham walked according to my statutes. Here's what God says in Exodus 15. Uh, It says of Moses that he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. Now the purpose of God's rules and God's statutes, commandments, and laws are for the good of his people. Would you agree? God doesn't just give arbitrary rules. Do it because I said so. God's rules and laws for his people always protect them. They always do them good. And therefore, their ultimate uh, refinement and joy So unless we understand right from the beginning that these people have wandered from the path of righteousness, the path of goodness, the path of great joy in their relationship with God, we're not going to understand the passage correctly. We have to understand as we move through this passage, not only is God unchanging, and God is sovereign, and God is in control, and God is good, but that his character now controls the laws that he gives. So these people have wandered from the statutes. And not only that, they have not kept them. This has been... uh, a consistent pattern with this word. You remember how the the sons of Levi, the priest, said the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. They should keep knowledge. They should preserve the truth about God. And in the same way as the people have wandered from the path, they haven't wandered from God's ways and gotten better. They haven't wandered from God's paths and God's rules and begun to think up better ways to live their life. Rather, they've been compromised in their disobedience. So... This passage is going to be controlled really by two significant commands. And as we begin, I want you to consider that in this topic, as we begin to deal with uh, God's rules and God's laws, particularly as they relate to how we handle our money and how Israel is going to handle their tithe, that God is going to... uh, confront them. And you've seen this throughout the book of Malachi, that they continue to have questions about how they're reacting and responding to God, right? They, can, they continue to, to struggle with being confronted by Malachi. They go, well, how has God loved us? How are we defiling to you? God, these, these sacrifices are wearisome. Uh, why don't you regard our offerings. How is it that we've made you tired? God, you're making us tired. So at the beginning of our conversation on money, I just want to say something up front to say that you and I, me, us, we together, plural pronoun, have a reticence to examine the topic that God's about to give to us here. We have an inborn reticence to examine how we handle money. And until we're confronted with God's word on it, we're very rarely going to make God-honoring decisions when it comes to how we handle our money. Because what we're going to think is that this command that God's about to give is for other people. It's not for us. Because we don't have a tendency to evaluate our money the way God does. So watch, here's the first command that comes at the end of verse 7. Return to me and I... Will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? So there's two things in God's command here. One is that we acknowledge the fact that the people of Israel have, defar- have departed from the way that God wants them to relate to Him, right? Here are the the rules, here are the statutes, here's the things that I've commanded you and you haven't kept them, you've wandered from them, you've disobeyed, so therefore what you should do is return. Which means God says there's not only a departure that you acknowledge in your repentance and your returning, but there's also an opportunity to come back to a state of relationship that is the right relationship, right? That's how repentance works. There's an acknowledgement that I've drifted, I confess my sin, and I return now in relationship to God. But what you're balanced with is this incredible promise by God. God doesn't just say, repent, cut it out, quit it. There's a promise of God connected to this command to return. Do you see it? You return to me and I will what? I'll return to you. There's a a promise of God that he will respond to our repentance. Now, this is great news for the church. This is great news for you. Because you and I need to know, have you ever read the story of the prodigal son? you remember this? It's a very, very popular biblical story from Luke chapter 15. If you read the parable of the prodigal son, one of the things that you discover in that passage is if you read it according to the theme of distance and movement, you recognize that the father doesn't move. The entire beginning of the parable is that the son comes to the father and basically says, give me the share of my inheritance and I'm going to go to where? I'm going to go away to this far land. And if you read the passage, you recognize the father doesn't go anywhere. The father stays home. The father, in fact, continues to have a relationship with the older son at this time. And it says that the younger son departs and leaves into a far country, spends all his money, has to eat food uh, that is given to pigs, gets a job, hates what he's doing, finally comes to his senses and says, how many of my father's servants have more than enough to eat? I'm going to make up my mind to go back to my father, tell him I've sinned, tell him, God, Father, you don't need to treat me as a son. Treat me as a hired hand. And the miracle and the incredible power of that parable is that as the son comes to his senses and begins the journey back to his father, you have a string of verbs that are all connected to the father. It says, while he was still a long way off, he saw him. He felt compassion. He ran. He embraced him and he kissed him. When does the father move toward the son? The minute there's repentance. So the good news, let me, let me just say this is somewhat unrelated to this passage. But you and I have no idea the power that repentance has to restore and develop the intimacy with God that we all long for. It is usually the thing that we avoid the most because of how often we're reticent to confess the fact that we have failed to live up to the rules and commandments and statutes of God. But when Malachi speaks it here and he says, you turn back to me, I promise to come back to you. Because the greatest news, in the there is not one story in all of the Bible where God says to a repentant sinner, you're not forgiven. Every single time people repent in the Bible, God loves to forgive. He rushes in to restore. He loves showing grace and mercy to people. So the promise of this passage where these people are going, well, we haven't obeyed. And God says, "I so long to restore our relationship with you." The minute you, I have, uh, I have six children. You may not know this. And when you have children, they're different. You can write that down. They're not all the same. I have one kid who I, I, I only in disciplining her, all I have to do is this. She crumbles. She, I mean, she just falls apart. She's she's so tense. Now that's not all of my kids. All of my kids, it takes a lot more than a lot more than that. But that's how God is when we repent. The minute he he hears the the I'm sorry. God forgive me. I've failed to do what I ought to do. Boom. God's there. Boom. There's forgiveness. Isn't that good news, church? Is your relationship with God, isn't there great joy, Christians, in saying, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So God says, return to me and I will return to you. And don't you want the people to go, amen, we're going to do it. What do they say? How, How do we return to you? How? Well, you don't know. Which I think is really a theme in all of the book of Malachi, is that we have a tendency to leave areas of our life unexamined. I have entire areas of my life that this week I didn't spend any time thinking, repenting, or praying about. Do you have that? I mean, I got hot spots in my life, but there are certain areas that I, by default, go, I'm doing pretty good there. And to be confronted <laughs> with God's word and go, Oh, gosh. I need to repent for that. I need to return to God. I need to return to obedience in that area of life. It's to embrace this promise. So these people are reticent. These people are confused. These people are saying, how shall we return? Which just shows us in a topic like money and the tithe is, is that we're, it's difficult to break into unless we're confronted directly. I can tell you just in the history of the past 10 years, I've had very few, I don't think I've had any, conversations with someone that went like, hey, I don't think you're giving the way you ought to be giving. Because that's an uncomfortable conversation, isn't it? You want to have that conversation with people? I don't think you're as committed to God's purposes in your life financially as you ought to be. And we got to wrestle with that as a church, don't we? We got to wrestle with that as spiritual leaders to go, are we willing to step on toes and make people uncomfortable with the commands that God has given us about how we use our money? I hope we have the courage to do that. I want to have the courage to do that. Because this question that the people give demands God's response. Now, I want you to see, how, how is God going to respond? What is God going to do to respond to his people who feel like uh, we don't agree with God's assessment of the situation? Look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Now, that's a little bit funny, right? And I think Malachi has it in there for a little bit of humor because who can rob God? Can men actually rob God? I can't really rob. God owns it all. He's got everything, all power, sovereignty, control, and authority everywhere in all places and all time. What does it mean for me to rob God? Why does God interpret what I'm doing as robbing God? Yet he says, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the answer is, in your tithes and contributions. So for God... God thinks there's something that he is owed. God thinks he has a right to something that the people have that they are not giving to him. Now the tithe is an Old Testament idea. The tithe essentially goes away in the New Testament. I'll show you that in about 20 minutes. But when God confronts his people with the fact that they have failed in their tithes and offerings... He's essentially saying you're withholding from essentially the tax that God has put upon his people as the theocratic people of God that live according to the Mosaic law. The tithe simply means a tenth. And it was a tenth that was taken and demanded of God in the context of of this theocratic society where God lives and dwells in the tabernacle among his people and in the temple. And it was given in such a way for multiple reasons, probably about four and the reason God gave the tithe, one, is that God calls it to be in response to his greatness. The tithe is demanded of God to say the tithe is holy to the Lord. That's from uh, Leviticus chapter 27. So there's an acknowledgment that what we have comes from God. Number two was given so that the Levites and the priests who were not allowed to own land in the Old Testament and whose lives were committed to service in the temple and service in the sacrificial system, they and their lives and their money and their time and their families were all supported by the tithe that came from God's people. So, the tithe would be given, the tenth would be given from among the essentially the, the, the wheat and the grain and the produce of the land. It would come from the livestock that they would work at that time and they would bring those things to the temple complex and it would feed the Levites and the priests. So it was a part of supporting the spiritual leadership of the nation whose job it was to administer the sacrifices and the rites and the, uh, all of the cultic practices that were associated with the Mosaic Law. Number three, it was given because every three years, what God would say is that you come and bring a tithe and you bring it to all of your towns. And what the tithe is there for is for the weak, the vulnerable, the needy, and the sojourner among you. So that the tithe was used not merely because to honor the Lord, secondarily for the spiritual leadership and the spiritual engine of the people that maintain the temple. Number three, it was given so that the weak and vulnerable in the society, the sojourners in the land, the widows in the land, the orphans in the land would be cared for. So it was God's way of providing for the weak and needy and vulnerable among the community. But ultimately, the tithe flowed from our hearts. If you were an Israelite, the tithe was given because of what God had given to you. Let me read this to you. This is from from Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 says when you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year which is the year of tithing give it to the Levite the sojourner the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So there you've got spiritual leaders and all the weak all the vulnerable all the needy and God's tithe would go forward to care for these people. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I've given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all the commandments that you have commanded me. God, my tithe is an act of obedience. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I haven't eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you've commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you've given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey." So it was this rich response out of the heart of the people who said, God, I've obeyed. I've done what you said. I've given to the spiritual leaders. We're caring for the needy in our community. God, everything that I have is yours, and I've given it to you. I haven't worshiped in any other way. God, all I have is yours, and my tithe is the expression of that obedient heart. So at this point, in the book of Malachi, God says, you've robbed me. You've taken from where you ought to have given. The second word is very interesting too. It says tithes and offerings. You see that? Offerings are typically translated as what's called in the Old Testament a heave offering. A heave offering is an offering that you would acknowledge before the Lord like this. You would acknowledge that it comes from God and it's been given to you. In other places, though, the word for offering is is consistently connected to people who have generous hearts. Because while the tithe may be a tenth off the top of my grain, my produce, and a variety of other things, there are ways in which God's people would also not merely give the tithe, but give above and beyond. So God recognizes people who not just write the 10% and give the 10% of the grain and the sheep and the goats and the rams but that people will now be moved as God is moving among the community to give above and beyond the 10%. So God recognizes there are people who give according to duty and there are also people who give because their heart, like Deuteronomy 26, is moved because of the greatness of God. He says both have resulted in you robbing me. So here's the people of Israel who have a problem with what and why and how they're giving. Let me, let's connect it. Is there a line that's connected between our heart and God when it comes to our money? Remember what Jesus says? That where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. The money has, has a way of, of really exposing what we believe about God. It has a way of exposing where really we put our confidence, where we really find our security. Because I think all of us would be reticent to go and look at how much money we've spent over the last 12 months and to go, have I given in such a way that God is my highest treasure? Have I given in such a way that I value him more than anything else? Now look at the consequences. So while it was hard, you know, it's hard sometimes for us to to examine the difficulty in our life as being expressly tied to money. We can can look at greed, but a lot of times greed in our culture is looked looked at as a cultural value, right? Contentment is not very high on the list of perceived cultural values in America. But for Israel, when they failed to give you could tell. Now, let me show you. Look at verse 9. You're cursed with a curse. Now, that's pretty easy to, to tell, right? God says, well, you're cursed. Well, when, they, when God uses this term, it's particularly connected to Leviticus, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that says, when you fail to obey my commands, particularly in context related to money, what you're going to see is you're going to see a downturn in the ecology of your land. You're going to see a downturn in the agricultural productivity. You're going to see a downturn in your harvest, a downturn in how your animals bear. You're going to see a downturn in how able you are to make ends meet. In fact, we've already seen this. If you go back just one chapter in Malachi chapter 2, look at two one. Now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you don't lay it to heart. So in some sense, the people who are back from exile can tell that things aren't the way they're supposed to be in the land because the people of Israel are an agricultural people. The people of Israel depend on the ecology of the day. They depend on the rains to come. They depend on no pests eating their crops. They depend on no blight or, or, or plant sickness to take over their crops. They're a completely dependent people. But when they begin to take the tithe and they begin to hoard it for themselves, when they begin to remove God from the equation and say, my tithe and my harvest is for me, then the consequences begin to show up in places that they can't control. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me. How many of them are robbing him? The whole nation. This has become a perpetual, cultural, national value. And this has been a struggle for the people of Israel up to this point because they continue to question God. They continue to say, God doesn't love us, therefore I shouldn't give to him. God doesn't accept my sacrifices. Why would I give more? Why would I give my best? I'll give just enough and I'll pout that God is not holding up his end of the bargain. But God has said, I'm turning off the spigot. You are now experiencing the consequences of failing to honor me. See, the issue is not particularly one about giving. The issue is one about the apostasy that has happened in the hearts of people. That's why when you have a giving problem in general, you don't have a giving problem you have a worship problem. Because all of us, all of us when we're reticent to give have lost the greatness and the goodness and the character of a God who is always and consistently faithful to his people and who does not change. Why do you think this passage starts like that? So that we'd be reminded of God's unchanging love and grace toward his people. So here's the second command. A whole nation is picking this up as a culture of value. Here's the command. Number one, what's the first command that we got? Say return. Return. Here's the second command. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Can I just say sorry I blew it and not have any change whatsoever? You ever do that? No, you don't do that? Okay, I just do that. God, I'm so sorry I blew it right there. I'm not going to change all that much, but man, I'm sorry I did that back there. See, God adds and he joins repentance to obedience. Why? Because repentance has to result in obedience. Repentance isn't just, I'm sorry for my sin. That's why the New Testament term for uh, repentance is a change of mind. I need to admit and confess that I've done the wrong thing. I've wandered from God's paths. I haven't kept God's rules. I repent for my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done. Now I'm going to respond in faith-filled obedience to the rules that God has given. Does that mean the curse immediately goes away, Steve? Watch this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Probably to be able to meet the needs of the priests, the Levites, the vulnerable, the weak, the orphan, the widows, and the sojourners in the land. And whether or not they're given the full 10th or they're given just half the 10th or whatever percentage of the 10th they're giving, in some sense, God says, bring me the full 10th. Be obedient to the rules that you know that I have given you. See, the tithe of the nation is an expression of the people that says, there's something more important than our agricultural success the thing that is most important to our community is obedience to God and worship for who he is. Do we believe that? That there's something more important in our community, there's something more important in your life and in my life than financial freedom and independence. And that's appropriate worship of God. Because the whole nation has drifted. The whole nation has refused to put God as the central and most important thing in their community. Now, if all we have for the people of Israel is the demand to give and to tithe, it's a righteous command and it's one they ought to obey. But God understands his people because a people who are bound and live lives that are primarily based on agriculture. A lot of us don't work in agriculture, right? Anybody work in agriculture? So where your success depends on the things that you sell that you grew? Yeah, right? We live primarily in our, in our time, in our industrialized nation, in jobs that, were, that are man-centered and man-created. Very few of us, not any of us, live in such a way where we're trusting God for the wheat to come up. We're trusting God to bring rain and to allow us to have productive and fruitful harvests. Which tells you that living, it's, which means it's hard for us to see how much our giving is connected to the outcomes in our lives. It's hard for us to draw that line. For Israel, it's not. Because when Israel does this, What they're doing is risking because you're taking, we're taking some of the seeds, some of the animals, some of the wheat, some of the grain, and we're working through the winter to make sure it lasts for our family. So for God to ask for the thing that is the marrow of our life, the sustenance of our family, and to say, give to me is an inherent risk. Amen? It's it's for us, for the Israelites to say, God, you are more important than what I have a right relationship with you is of more value to me than the things that I have my hands on so when these people risk what they're doing is they're putting this tithe into God's hands and confessing that God is more in control of their fortune and their outcome than they are which is why this next promise is so incredible if you're going to teach faith based prosperity giving you're going to teach it from this verse right here do you know that this is where it comes from. Because the people of Israel don't give to get the Camaro. The people of Israel don't give to get their 5-4 on the water. Five bedrooms, four baths on the water. You got it? You don't think about a 5-4 on the water? See this, and, and this right here, shows you that giving is not really about giving. Giving is about your perspective on God. Always. It's always connected to your perspective on God. Look at what he says at the end of the verse. Thereby. What is the thereby? By your willingness to do what? Well, by your willingness to bring the tithe. If you are willing to bring the tithe to me, for you to risk on my character and risk on my unchanging favor and ability to meet your needs... Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is one of the most dramatic statements God can make in this context. This is stunning. Do you understand how stunning? See, a lot of times in the Bible, we're told not to test God. Because testing God in other contexts of the Bible has to do with disbelief in God, His promises, and His character. But in another sense, in this passage right here, God says, you test me, you put faith in my character, goodness, promises, and my ability to turn the agricultural, ecological engine of the day in your favor. I dare you to give. I dare you to risk it on my character. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Watch what God does. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, every single thing that God's about to do here has nothing to do with what men can do. Everything that God does is in response to people who go, God, you are more important to me than anything else. God, our worship, our connection, our relationship is the most important to me, and therefore I will give out of what I have that I think could sustain me. But God, I'm going to risk it on your goodness and kindness toward us, trusting that you can sustain me more than what I can see and put my hands on. And God says, I will open the very windows of heaven. This term is used in the context of the flood. Which probably means that God will turn on the rain. Can you turn on the rain? God says, you put me first, you give to me, you test me. You risk yourself on my character and you watch me turn on the rains in your land and I will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Literally it goes until, in the Hebrew it's weird, it goes uh, until there is no more sufficiency. Which means my provision will match your need completely and perfectly every time you risk yourself on me. I have been in ministry a long time. I have raised support in a variety of situations in the course of my life. And I can say, while I've never had significantly huge bank accounts, I have always watched God provide for my needs. And I've got six kids. You might not have six kids. Let me just give you a word of faith right now from me to you. God can do it. He can provide for your needs. He can meet the needs that you have right there because of your willingness to come into and to return, to repent over the ways in which we become misers and instead open our hands and go, God, can you meet needs that I can't meet? This is amazing. Do you know that God is in control of things, not just ecologically and agriculturally, but in areas of your line of work that you can't control? Imagine the most difficult and un- God can change economies, God can change uh, entire lines of work and open them up and eliminate them. God is in complete control over every part of his creation such that he can turn creation itself in response to God's people having faith in him. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Watch me open heaven and provide for your needs. See, this, this expression of God's people is always connected to a future risk. This is what faith is. Faith is risking myself on the character of God for God to do something in the future that I cannot do. I trust by what I'm doing, God, by my submission to you and obedience to you that you're going to have to provide my needs in the future. You're going to have to turn creation itself because, God, you're the Lord of all creation, heaven and earth. You're going to have to do things that I can't do in situations and areas and people and conversations to meet needs that, God, I confess I cannot do, but I'm going to come to you and honor you first. Watch this. Uh, I will pour down a blessing till there's no more need. Verse 11, I'll rebuke the devourer. Can you keep, I have, we have a variety of plants on our back porch. We have had multiple kinds of bugs eat plants to the ground. Do you know what we can do about it? Nothing. And we stand there and we go, the the kale's dead. Tomatoes are gone. What did we do? I don't know. I'm not sure how to keep bugs away. I can't keep mosquitoes off myself. And God says, I'll rebuke the devourer, probably the locust, so that will not destroy the fruits of your soil, which means I'll prevent pests from eating your, not only will I turn on the rain and just let it go, I'm going to turn on the rain and allow your plants to, to grow. I'm going to rebuke the pests. I'm going to make sure that there's a hedge of protection, essentially, around your plants. Not only that, the vine in your field should not fail. Fair, that. The vine, your, I'm going to, hold on. I'll get it. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You know what else he's going to take care of? He's going to take care of plants that don't grow right. The ones you've got to take back to Home Depot because they died in a month. God says, I can keep that away too. I can turn on the rain. I can keep bugs away. I can keep your plants alive. Is someone in control of the agricultural system of Israel? You bet. Verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This has been a consistent theme in the book of Malachi. What's going to happen as a result of people trusting God, having faith in God, giving a tithe to God, and trusting that he's in control of the rain, the bugs, and the plants themselves? That the nations will look and go, you must be in right standing with God because this blessing can't come from anybody else other than God. You go back into Malachi 1 where God says "A uh, incense will be offered in my name among the nations. The entire goal is that not just that the people of Israel would worship by being in right relationship with God through repentance and faith but that the whole world would be characterized by worship and repentance and faith. Now so it, you see the themes because listen Citadel Square is not the temple. I am not a Levite. But are there themes here that matter to us in 2023? Are there struggles that we have when it comes to our money that have obscured our perspective on God and who he is? Let me just just ask some questions. Does our money have more sway over our decisions and our obedience than God does? Are we hesitant to obey because of what we disbelieve about God and his character? Have you recently looked this year at how you're spending your money? And asked the hard questions about am I living as a Christian who is just here for a short amount of time? Would your financial statements say that God is the most important thing to me? Does your giving include an element of risk? Let me just, I'm not going to put this on anybody else other than me, but I have recognized in my own life that when I give, if I don't give to the point to where I am asking myself, God, I sure could use this money for things that that, uh, my family needs. God, I sure could use this money for other things that I think might be helpful in our home then I'm not sure for me, this is me, you got to determine where you are in this with the Lord. I'm not sure I'm at the place where God wants me in giving. And I've had to wrestle this through the course of being in ministry for 15, 20 years now, where I've really had to wrestle with how much I'm willing to give so that I live where I believe God wants us to be on the bleeding edge of dependence and his provision. That's, I believe, where God wants the New Testament Christian to be. Because this text is not here so that God would bless your desire for financial prosperity. This text is here to challenge your financial idolatry and to invite you into experiencing God in ways that you will never know him unless you're willing to give. That's the power of this promise in this text. Let me show you this. This text is only balanced by an even greater promise in the New Testament. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9 as we close? Second Corinthians chapter nine is one of Paul's treatises on New Testament giving. Um, and when you move to the New Testament, the New Testament's commands on giving are often in the context of the agricultural metaphor. The agricultural metaphor in the New Testament in the Old Testament, while it's um, very applicable to the Old Testament system that God set up through, through the Mosaic system, it, the theme of dependence on the Lord and looking to how agriculture works continues to inform how we understand giving in the New Testament. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9. Are you all there? 2 Corinthians 9, look at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What's he talking about? Well, any time that we plant, it's better for you to have five or six seeds in the hole than one in the hole. Because you got a better shot of stuff coming up and you got a better shot of a bigger harvest. That's his point. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves, what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. This is why the New Testament demand that worked under the Old Testament theocracy and the way God related to his people goes away in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, the tithe goes away, but God recognizes the fact that when we know God and express our love and compassion and care and deference and dependence upon him, we do it through a heart relationship not through external rules we taught this a few years ago in our church and one of the things we did is it's so tempting to do this as a pastor you want to give people a percentage and you maybe want a percentage go give me a percentage so that i can know i'm faithful and the new testament won't do it you know why Because God loves a cheerful giver. You won't want to give reluctantly or under compulsion. I'm not going to make you give a percentage, and I'm not going to drag it out of your wallet just because I say you have to, because God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us in heart-dependent relationship with him. And God is able to make all grace. Isn't that good news? God is what? He's able. You're not sure that God can meet that need right now. You have stuff in your head right now that you're arguing with me over. You know how I know I've been doing this a long time? People argue as they sit there. You look pretty and you're smiling, but you're arguing. <laughs> I know it because I do it too. Yes. Yeah, but. Yeah, but I've got. And a lot of times we forget that God is what? Able. He's able. He is able to make all. If God can turn the rain on, then he is able. Amen? If God can make mosquitoes go away, then he is able. If God can make plants live just because of his word over the agriculture in a region, then God is able to make all grace abound to you. So having what kind of sufficiency? All sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in all good works. See, this is the New Testament heart of our giving. God, do what my giving, do with my money, my little bitty money at this time, or my lot of bit of money. Some of you in this room make tenfold what other people in the room make. And that's good. Amen. But God is able so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. How much is God going to get behind our willing obedience to make him the center of our lives? How much is God going to meet the needs that we have when we are willing to say, God, all that I have is yours. Whatever you want me to give, God, direct my heart to give in such a way that it honors you. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food, the beginning and the end, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's the goal in our giving? God doesn't need, listen, news flash, God doesn't need your money. You need to give. Because you need to become more like Christ. I need to give because I need to be conformed to the image of God's dear son. And he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way. To be generous in every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Who's going to see it through our giving? For the ministry of this service, the giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's just like Malachi 3 verse 12. What are the nations going to see when God's people in faith risk themselves on the character and the goodness of God? They're going to stand up and they're going to applaud that God is great. Thanksgiving is going to explode. By their approval of this service, in context of the churches, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What's the source of all Christ-centered generosity? It's the gospel of Christ where he gave it all so that we could have everything who had nothing. From your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contrib- contribution for them and for others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's the source of a people who are risking themselves on God? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that we, in repentance and faith, have turned back to God and have confessed our need of him. And God has responded by sending Jesus Christ, who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So our hands are open. Our hearts are open. God, however you want to use my finances, However you want me to respond, God, however you want me to be a cheerful giver, God, I open my hands to you because you are the most important thing to me. That's what giving is all about. Amen? Father, we confess that so often we are reticent to risk ourselves on your provision. Father, we repent of the tendency and our propensity to greed, to making money our source of security to uh, make it our our great, most important idol. And we confess, Father, I just, I pray that myself, that I would embrace the command of Malachi here to test you and see if you won't turn creation, to see if you won't respond in goodness and provision to us as we are willing to open our hands and be faithful with with, with what you have given to us. God, you are able to make all grace abound to us, And you've proven that by sending your son. So we never have to be skeptical of your love. We never have to be uncertain of your kindness. And Father, there's such power in repentance. I pray today for someone in this room who might be recognizing that they have not repented and they have not returned. And Father, that they would find great hope and forgiveness and restoration by returning to you and putting what you have put in their hands into yours and saying, God, do with what we have abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine. Father, save us from the idolatry of greed. Save us from putting our hope and our security in anything other than your goodness and your unchanging faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.